In the very earliest days of the American Revolution, in late autumn of 1775, several American warships invaded little Prince Edward Island. The raiders pillaged Charlottetown, stealing any valuables they could get their hands on, right down to Charlottetowners' curtains, carpets, and even their cutlery. More significantly, they also took the Great Seal of PEI, which, by the way, the Americans still haven't returned. The invaders then got thoroughly drunk and kidnapped two islanders, bringing them back to personally meet with General George Washington himself, who was not exactly pleased to see them. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. Seventeen seventy five was the very earliest days of the American Revolution. The rebellious colonies were distinctly less than prepared for what would soon turn into a nearly decade long war with Britain. Britain at the time was the world's greatest superpower, and the ensuring conflict would later draw in several other European nations. All of that was later on, though, because the war would drag on for eight years. At the time of this story, however, the conflict was only just beginning. William Legg, the Earl of Dartmouth, who was the state secretary for the British colonies, didn't think much of the little uprising in New England, writing... Those who have taken up arms in Massachusetts have appeared to me as the acts of a rude rabble, without plan, without concert, without conduct. He concluded that it wouldn't take much to defeat them, writing, A small force now, if put to the test, would be able to conquer them with greater probability of success than might be expected of a larger army. He wasn't exactly all that far off. The Americans were not exactly ready, but they were hastily trying to organize themselves to prepare for a long upcoming war. A talented general from the southern states named George Washington had recently taken command of the rebels' armed forces. He was busily trying to build a professional organized fighting force, which included a navy. Captain Nicholas Broughton was commissioned in September of 1775 as the first ever Commodore of the American Navy. He was 50 years old and a seasoned veteran of the seas, having spent the last 20 years of his life as a captain. He was put in charge of a ship called the Hancock, one of the very first ships in the American Navy. He was joined by another ship named the Franklin under Commodore John Selman. The two American warship's first ever mission was quite straightforward. General Washington's spies had learned that two brigs, and a brig is a large type of ship, were sailing from England to Quebec. These two brigs were carrying a massive load of weapons, had guns and gunpowder and cannons and so on to supply the defense of Quebec, which the Americans were planning on invading. The two American ships' mission was simple capture those two brigs and stop them supplying Quebec, and bring the critical weapons to supply the rebellion. With much fanfare, pretty much the entire United States Navy, which is to say simply those two ships, set off on their mission. In a letter to George Washington, dated November 6th, 1775, 
and signed by both Commodores Broughton and Selman, they stated, The wind being contrary and blowing up a heavy storm, we were obliged to give over our design. They never even came close to accomplishing their goal of capturing those two brigs. It was awfully late in autumn when they set out and they got caught up in poor weather and one of their ship's masts fell off. They landed their ships in Cape Canso in Nova Scotia. Their sailors went off to the forest to cut down a tree to make a new mast for the ship. They had rather bad luck in that too, needing to cut down five separate trees before finding an appropriate one to make the new mast. By the time they fixed their ship, their mission had long since become irrelevant. The two British ships had already long since safely arrived in Quebec with their load of weapons. Not terribly sure about what they should do now, and lacking fresh orders from George Washington, the two American ships decided to try and make the most of the rather unusual situation they now found themselves in. They hung around the Cape Canso area, off the coast of Nova Scotia, and they took over five separate commercial ships that they came across. The two Commodores wrote in a letter to George Washington that, We are something comforted in that no vessel passes this season to Boston from Halifax or to any part of American from Quebec, but must pass within gunshot of us. This seizing of commercial ships was extremely dubious legally. That it was the sort of behavior that was associated with pirates, not nations at war. However, the two American warship captains seemed to think of what they were doing less as piracy, which is what it was, legally speaking, and more as liberating. They had been under the impression that the sailors on the ships they attacked would be sympathetic to the American cause and would join them willingly. However, instead of joining them, they found that these sailors, who were mostly from the Maritimes on these other ships, instead made fun of them. They wrote in a letter that None of these men appear in a very favorable light respecting their attachment to American liberties. They use the words Yankees and Pankings with apparent jeering. The American captains complained in a letter to Washington that one of the captives called Boston a den of mischievous violators of the rights of humanity. The two American ships continued to hang around Nova Scotia until they caught word that the island of St. John was preparing to equip a force to intervene in the American Revolution on the side of the British. In an effort to disrupt these plans, the two American warships set sail for the island. The island of St. John is what we now call Prince Edward Island. It would later be renamed for the simple and practical reason that there were too many St. John-based names in the region already. There was the city of St. John in New Brunswick, there was the city of St. John's in Newfoundland, and there was the St. John River. So now the island would simply be called Prince Edward Island. Although the name change would happen later, just to simplify things, I'm going to call it PEI from here on, because, well, there really are too many places in Atlantic Canada named St. John. PEI was a newly separated little colony, having only recently been split off from Nova Scotia a couple years earlier in 1769. And when I say Nova Scotia, I also mean New Brunswick too, because back then New Brunswick was still a part of Nova Scotia, and it would only be separated in 1785. 
After the Americans landed on PEI, the two nominal leaders of the island, 30-year-old acting governor Philip Kalbeck and 35-year-old member of the governing council Thomas Wright, would be captured by the Americans and brought to what is now the United States as captives. Callback would later pen a lengthy letter to George Washington describing the invasion of PEI and the ransacking of Charlottetown in great detail. Before we get to the description of the invasion though, please remember this is very early in the American Revolution. Local people on PEI were likely only vaguely aware of the recent armed uprising that had just erupted. And it was more or less entirely localized at that time in and around the Boston area. Even if the local people of PEI had been aware of the events in faraway Boston, they would have seemed almost certainly impossibly distant and alien to them. Suddenly though, these two mysterious heavily armed big ships appeared in Charlottetown's harbor. In his letter, Philip Callback described what happened next. On Friday, the 17th of November, two armed schooners, or privateers, arrived at Charlottetown, capital of said island. Immediately after, Captains Broughton and Selman landed with two parties under their command. Mr. Callback met Captain Selman on his landing, who, notwithstanding a very civil reception, immediately ordered him on board his vessel without permitting him to return to his house, though requested to do so. As he was going on board, one of the party, insultingly, without any provocation, struck him. Captains Broughton and Selman, with their party, immediately proceeded to a store with a large assortment of goods which they immediately sent to their vessel, after which they broke into two other stores, out of which they took the most valuable articles together with the entire stock of provisions, prepared for families' winter support. Between 70 or 80 people who were lately arrived on the island depended on for their support during winter and will all probably starve. They went back to Mr. Callbeck's house and broke the bedchamber's closet, scattered Mrs. Callbeck's clothes about and read her letters from her sisters. They took the window curtains and the bed, took Mrs. Callbeck's rings and bracelets, took the parlor window curtains and carpets, took out of the cellar all the wine, porter, rum, Geneva, and cordials. Except one cask of wine, they drank whole. They also took Mrs. Callbeck's little stores of candles and bacon. They raided other houses, broke china, drank what liquor they found in the house, took window curtains, carpets, knives, forks, spoons. After all they accomplished, they took Mr. Wright into custody and onto the vessel where Mr. Callbeck was confined. With their barbarity, Captain Selman ordered his party to take Mr. Wright from the arms of his wife and sister, and insultingly smiled at the tears and lamentations of women who were in the greatest distress being separated from their husband, brother. The second man they kidnapped to bring back to America was Thomas Wright. He was a land surveyor, and he was not particularly politically active or important, at least as far as he was concerned. He did, however, on paper, actually have a rather high-profile position as a member of the Little Province's governing council. However, he'd rarely even attended meetings. Normally, he was away from Charlottetown surveying the island, he wasn't especially connected with politics locally, let alone on the international stage that he would soon be thrust onto. 
Basically, he had picked a really bad time to come home from surveying in the woods, and he was now thrust in the middle of an international incident. During their pillaging of Charlottetown, in an especially insulting gesture, the Americans stole PEI's Great Seal, which was an important symbolic blow at the time. Colbeck complained in his letter to George Washington. They took the province silver seal weight 59 ounces, Governor Patterson's commission, and even took some of Mr. Colbeck's clothes and all his shoes. After they had gone house to house stealing valuables and, it seems, drinking up much of the alcohol on PEI, the two American ships departed back towards the Boston area where the rebellion was centered. The two islanders, Thomas Wright and Philip Colbeck, were on board, and according to Colbeck's letter, had been wantonly torn from their families, brought in in a state of captivity upwards of 600 miles by sea, during which they encountered many inconveniences. The two islanders reacted to their capture rather differently. Thomas Wright was miserable, quickly slipping into a depression worried about his wife and his sister back at home on PEI. Philip Callback, on the other hand, almost seemed to relish his capture, seeing it as a great opportunity. Highly ambitious, only 30 years old, and having what might politely be described as a bit of an opportunistic streak, he saw all of this as a potentially positive career development for him. Appraising everything on board the ship he was captive on from the perspective of gaining leverage, Philip Colbeck correctly deduced that the two American sea captains had not actually been ordered to invade PEI, but had in effect gone rogue. He also correctly figured out that the American leadership of the revolution would have a low opinion on the two ships raiding and pillaging of Charlottetown. Sure enough, when Callback and Wright, along with a handful of other prisoners from Nova Scotia, were brought to what is now the United States, George Washington was not very impressed to learn what they had done. George Washington's idea at that time was that if the other colonies wanted to join the rebellion he was leading, then they should join on their own. At least that's what he said. More practically speaking, he didn't actually have the troops to spare to get involved in conflicts outside of the New England region anyways. Most importantly for George Washington, though, was that the attack on PEI looked like a public relations nightmare in the making. It was important to him that the American rebels appear sympathetic in the eyes of the great European powers he hoped to convince to join his side. It was important that the upstart Americans looked like they were fighting for their freedom from the British, not invading defenseless nearby islands to steal curtains, carpets, and cutlery. When he received word of this attack by his new navy on PEI, he was not very happy. In a letter to John Hancock, George Washington wrote, My fears that Broughton and Silman would not affect any good purpose were too well founded. They are returned and brought with them some of the principal inhabitants from the island of St. John's. Mr. Colbuck is president of the council, acted as governor. They brought the governor's commission, the province seal. 
In an effort to try and head off a public relations nightmare, George Washington punished the two American captains. After the meeting, he wrote in a letter, As the captains acted without any warrant for such conduct, I have thought it but justice to discharge these gentlemen, whose families were left in the utmost distress. Then George Washington rushed to meet the two captured islanders. There doesn't seem to be any record of what happened at their meeting, which is surprising because American historians have pretty much tracked down every minute of every day of George Washington's life in detail. However, the important thing that happened in this meeting was that George Washington ordered the two islanders to be immediately released. Several weeks later, on Christmas Eve, Philip Kalbeck wrote a letter to George Washington to thank him for releasing him. I should but ill deserve the generous treatment your excellency has been pleased to show me had I not gratitude to acknowledge so great a favor. His letter indicated to Washington that he was going back home to PEI. However, he was in fact not going home to PEI, at least not yet. George Washington had made the rather unusual decision to release the two islanders immediately, on the spot. They were completely freed with no guards to escort them back home. Thomas Wright, the surveyor who had never wanted to be involved in the whole situation in the first place, immediately made a beeline for the coast, catching the first boat he could find to head back home to his family on PEI. For Philip Callback, however, who had some rather grandiose plans for himself in life, this situation presented an unusual opportunity. He'd now found himself free in the rebel part of America, able to wander around behind enemy lines as he liked. So he decided right then and there that he would become a spy. He drifted around the parts of New England which were controlled by the Americans, tracking their troop movements. He made maps of their defenses and of the locations of their forts. He tracked their weapons and he tried his best to figure out what their plans were, taking detailed notes on everything he saw. After he eventually decided to go back home, he stopped in Halifax to present all that he had documented to the British military authorities. His information would soon become highly important. Callback became the acting governor of PEI and invested heavily in military spending, building a formidable little military force and defending the island in case of another military raid on PEI by the Americans. However, there would never be another American attack on PEI. History's twists and turns wouldn't be very kind to either of those two islanders who'd been captured and taken to America. Philip Kalbeck's grandiose plans would eventually get the better of him. In 1783, just as the American Revolution was finally ending, he got himself involved in what might be described as a deeply corrupt land deal, selling off entire PEI towns who'd gone into debt to wealthy landowners from England. He would eventually be arrested for these land deals, stripped of his titles, and dying shortly after. The poor hapless Thomas Wright also managed to get caught up in these same corruption allegations too. Although it seemed that once again he'd managed to get swept up in something that actually had very little to do with him. 
Once again, he held an important role on paper, but once again, he'd been skipping meetings to go off in the woods. And once again, getting caught up in major events, it actually seemed to have very little to do with him. Thomas Wright would be put on trial, where he would ultimately be found innocent and pardoned. However, he was so humiliated by the whole affair, and his reputation was ruined, after his rather bewildering failure to, well, basically, show up for work, with one person at his trial commenting, Never was a human made so ridiculous a figure. And as for the stolen Great Seal of P.E.I., it was actually never returned by the Americans. Judging by the Prince Edward Island government's current stance on the stolen Great Seal, it sounds like it is still a rather sensitive subject for Prince Edward Islanders. Here is a recent official statement on the issue from PEI's government. In 1769, Prince Edward Island, then known as St. John's Island, was granted colonial status and received its great seal from Britain. One side of the seal showed His Majesty's armorial bearings, while the other side bore an early version of our current shield of arms. This seal was stolen in 1775 by American Revolutionary Forces and was never recovered. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.